Hello, and welcome to the Encounters with China podcast made by the Duehua Foundation. Duehua advocates for at-risk detainees in China, and is the only NGO that can submit prisoner lists directly to the Chinese government and receive written responses. In 2004, Duehua was granted special consultative status with the United Nations Economic and Social Council, commonly referred to as ECOSOC. I'm your host, Sammy Amanatula, and in this episode, we're going to be talking to Duehua founder John Cam about Duehua's work at the United Nations and the Universal Periodic Review for China this month. Hello, John. Hello, Sammy, and thank you for doing this program. My pleasure. We have the Universal Periodic Review for China coming up. We spent the final months of 2023 preparing our submission. The last one we did for China was in 2018, and it focused on judicial transparency, just like this time. John, can you give us an overview of the UPR? There are two principal forums for discussing human rights in the United Nations. One is the Human Rights Council, based in Geneva, and the other is the Third Committee of the UN General Assembly, which meets in New York. When the Human Rights Council replaced the Human Rights Commission, it was agreed that every member state of the United Nations, not just members of the Human Rights Council, but of the entire United Nations, every one of them must have their human rights record reviewed every five years, more or less. There are treaties, treaty bodies, to which governments. Of member states、uh, ascribe, and there are special procedures in the UN under the Human Rights Council. John, can you briefly explain what happens at the UN during the UPR and other reviews like CEDA? It's a five-week session. It happens three times a year, and as it turns out,、uh, China's Universal Periodic Review will take place in January. Duehua has already made its submission, and we will be focusing on judicial transparency. Now, what happens is every country has an opportunity to say something. China will submit its country re- report, as it were, to the UPR, and every country will have an opportunity to comment on it. Now, that causes a bit of a problem because, of course, there are many countries who want to speak. And you can't possibly speak at length. That's such a frustrating situation. It's something that we dealt with when we were going through the CEDAW review, which, for those who don't know, means refers to the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, or its accompanying treaty.、Um, as you know. In those events, you have a lot of government-sponsored NGOs or gongos that are trying to make positive comments, in addition to some of the things that NGOs might be more critical about. Moving on, why did Duehua decide to pursue ECOSOC status? So, in June of 2004, President Ronald Reagan passed away. I was going to New York, really, to see family, primarily. But I was given a meeting, an audience, with the Chinese ambassador to the United Nations, a really seasoned, experienced diplomat by the name of Wang Guangya. Wang Guangya invited me to come, and he also brought in his staff, 
And uh, I just mentioned to him on the spur of the moment that I'd like to get special consultative status. And he said, okay, I will support you. And then he looked around the room and he said, if any of these people give you a hard time, you let me know. Well, let me tell you what, they didn't give him a hard time. So he said he would help. And I have a very dear friend who worked for the UN and she got me in uh, to see uh, the person in charge of the NGO committee. And so I show up and uh, she's getting ready to go on a vacation. So she said, uh, all right, what do, you, what do you want? And I said, I'd like to get special consultative status. And she said, oh, really? Which country? And I said, China. And she said, forget about it. You're never going to get that. And I said, as a matter of fact, I just came from a meeting with the uh, Chinese ambassador. And he said he would support me. Well, I mean, she practically fell out of her chair because China does not usually support NGOs who want to get special consultative status to work on them. No, 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 they don't like that at all. So, okay, I filed the paperwork and lo and behold, our application, Dweifos application, was considered. So my assumption, and I think a lot of people's would be too, is that this process isn't easy or even expected. So can you talk about what was the approval process like? How did Weihua even get through? I heard from someone who was in the room that, uh, well, what happens is the head, the chair of the NGO committee that is in charge of granting consultative status. And what they do is, I think there were 180 names. And so what they do is they read the name and then they ask this, you know, Dweihua Foundation is applying for a special consultative status, and they would they would use the status to work on China human rights. Are there any objections? In the room were all of China's allies, Pakistan, Cuba, and so on. And they were about to raise their hand to object, but they looked at the Chinese representative, and she just sat there. She didn't give them a sign. She didn't say anything. She didn't object. So he moved along in this case. The head of the NGO committee moves along. Then at the end, he says, now I want to return to something. I want to make sure I've got this right. Are there any objections to the Dweihua Foundation? And again, the Chinese representative, who happened to be in the meeting I had with Wang Guangya, she said nothing. And so later she told me, I was so embarrassed <laughs> that he came back and made me go over this again. And the other countries were looking, what is this? So that's what happened. Maybe I'm wrong, but if you're an NGO at the UN, there is quite a bit you can do. What does Dweihua do with its status? We use it a lot, and, and of course you know this because you have participated in such things as CEDA, Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So what we do is we uh, make submissions, and then we are invited to say something about our submission. So again, you went and you uh, made a submission on uh, women in prison, which I was told we were the only ones who did that. And so that was very welcome got a lot of attention. Now, we have done others as well, but the main thing we do is the Universal Periodic Review. We have made a submission to every one of them, and we carefully prepare it. And one of the things we try to do 
and we did especially in the last one in 2018, is we attach lists of prisoners to our submission. Now, very interesting. We, we do it as appendices. The list, maybe two or three lists, and we attach it. So for your submission to the Universal Periodic Review, you have a strict limit on the number of words in your submission. However, there's no limit on your appendices. And we figured that out. So we put in names. So in effect, we're doing a UPR with prisoner lists. As far as NGOs with universal consultative status, I'm sure we're the only ones who do that on China. You mentioned the judicial transparency for the 2018 UPR for China. And I know that Dwei Hua has also made interventions for the United States UPR, talking about its human rights record. Well, we have addressed the death penalty. Uh, we make submissions to the U.S. UPR, and of course, uh, the U.S. and China are one of the only major countries that still practices the death penalty. I think Japan does too, but Russia doesn't. We're really uh, an outlier, I must say. I'm very, very sorry to have to say that. We also have excellent relations with the special procedures, including the working group on arbitrary detention. And we have managed to help secure the opinion of the working group on arbitrary detention for a couple of American citizen prisoners. And we're working on others, including Mark Sweden. And uh, we were able to uh, help out the family and get an opinion that, he, in fact, he was arbitrarily detained, that he needs to be released immediately and compensated for what he's been through, which has been horrific. Now, I have to stress here, just because we get the UN working group to make such a ruling or an opinion, it doesn't mean that the country has to do anything. In this case, China didn't pay any attention at all. And yet, it's still important, all right? It really shines the light on the case, and it means a lot to the families. I imagine that this work involves a lot of collaboration and discussion, and given that it's the UN, a lot of different stakeholders. Do you do consultations with UN officials as well? We're very close to UN uh, officials at the uh, Human Rights Council and in the Office of the High Commissioner. So we have a, a, an excellent relationship with them. Very proud of that. And for many years, obviously, I mean, since at least 2005, uh, we've had frequent communications. When we're in Geneva, we meet with them, including with the high commissioner. The only high commissioner I was never able to meet with was Miss Bachelet. But everyone else I have, and there's a standing invitation for me to meet with the current high commissioner. If and when I'm able to travel, which I hope I will, I hope take up that standing invitation to meet with the High Commissioner. So this work is really controversial, and most countries and leaders, or many, uh, they tend to view any concern, especially over human rights, as an insult or an accusation. And this is even when the comments are just, you know, observations. So have you ever gotten any feedback from China or the United States on Dwei Hua's UPRs? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, the 2018, our submission to the UPR, a couple of Chinese officials applauded us, said it was a good job, and they thanked me, and 
Of course, I was saying some positive things about judicial transparency, most of which I can no longer say. In the submission we made in 2018, we talked about how China had become increasingly transparent by releasing the judgments on many cases. Looking at those, we found the names of hundreds of political prisoners. Now, for the upcoming UPR submission, we also discuss judicial transparency, but unfortunately, China has become far less transparent. It has basically shut down access to all kinds of legal documents, judgments, accounts, sentence reduction uh, websites. It's quite incredible. Now, why is judicial transparency so important? Let me give you a, an example, the work we have been doing on Rahil Dawood case. Now, Rahil Dawood is a very distinguished Uyghur scholar who was disappeared at the end of 2017, brought to trial in 2018. We knew that she had been brought to trial, I was told, but we did not know what the outcome of the trial was. Almost six years after she was disappeared, I saw a letter from a senior Chinese official to the effect that she had been sentenced to life in prison, which is, by the way, the longest uh, sentence for the crime that she was convicted of, which is splitism. We don't have a copy of the judgment. We don't have details. Without the judgment, a family cannot, the individual cannot, petition the Supreme Court for a retrial. That is the final step in the justice process. Speaking of the UN more broadly, it gets a lot of criticism, including for being ineffective, culturally biased, or for overreaching. Do you think these criticisms are valid, and how would you sell the UN to skeptics? Winston Churchill famously said at the House of Commons in 1947 that democracy is the worst form of government, but it's better than all the others. And I would modify that for the United Nations. It is the worst forum for advocating for human rights, but it's better than all the other forums. That's how I would answer that. If you get rid of the UN, what else do you have? You have bilateral human rights exchanges, in this case, between, say, China and other countries. Very few left of those, not just because China doesn't want them, but because, for instance, the United States has turned down the opportunity to have them, which I think is a big mistake, but that's the way it is. Not since 2016 have we had, in the United States and China, has there been uh, an official human rights dialogue. Now, there have been others. I think the EU has. I believe Switzerland has. This has all been announced. But uh, now... China is focusing on having human rights dialogues or consultations with um, Mexico, United Arab Republic, Egypt. So, you know, basically now China is having their dialogues with so-called like-minded countries. So, you know, this, this is too bad. I hope that there will be bilateral human rights dialogues in the future, but it takes two to tango. The United States 
back in 2016, during the Obama administration, said, we're not interested. And again, I don't think that's, that's fair. At least you get to raise names. If you raise names, it makes a difference. In terms of making a difference, when it comes to human rights at the UN, a lot of it involves the international treaties. So the two main ones being the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And then, as we mentioned, there's CEDA, which focuses on discrimination against women. And there's, for example, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. When it comes to these treaties, how productive are the United States and China? Well, very interesting. Uh, The United States has signed and ratified, two different things, have signed and ratified the Civil and Political Rights Covenant. It has not signed and ratified the economic, civil, and cultural one. China is the mirror image. It has signed and ratified the economic, social, and cultural one, I think is the name of it. They have signed, but they have not ratified the civil and political rights. So our priority, the United States, is civil and political, especially political rights. China's priority is economic rights. But I must say, even in that respect, China has its issues. For instance, it does not allow independent trade unions, which is called for under that covenant. That is a very confusing message to send, yeah. So the U.S.-China relationship, especially over the past year, has involved a lot of back and forth and trading accusations about human rights violations, especially at the U.N. And I mean, this has happened to the point that other countries have expressed quite publicly that These disputes make it hard to get anything done. Are there ways for the U.S. and China to cooperate at the United Nations? And what topics or issues do you think they could work on together? Okay, here's another another kind of a pet peeve of mine. The United States is one of, I think, five countries, including North Korea, by the way, that have not signed or ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, I'd like to see the United States do that. It's a shame that they haven't done it. And so I would like to see other countries, including China, push the United States to sign that and to ratify it. It's really unthinkable that they're not doing that. Other areas, and I've already talked a little bit about this, are women in prison. Dwei Hua did an international symposium in Hong Kong on this in February 2014. Both the United States and China were in attendance, including the UN, too. Both countries say, have said, that they want to incorporate the so-called Bangkok rules. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of progress on that front, but that's one area that certainly the United States can. So, juvenile justice, women in prison, rights of the disabled. That's another area where, in fact, the U.S. and China used to have a dialogue just on that. So these are areas where there can be some cooperation. Well, John, thanks so much for speaking with us, and thanks to our listeners. You can find our submissions on our website, www.dweihua.org. Go to resources, go to testimonies, and you can find our submissions there. And you can also find our submissions on the United Nations Human Rights Council dedicated website for universal periodic reviews. 
And remember to subscribe to this podcast and Weihua's publications to stay updated on U.S.-China relations and Weihua's work. Thank you, Sammy. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you today.